0: From WRTI, welcome to The Late Set. I'm Greg Bryant.
1: And I'm Nate Chenin.
0: John Coltrane, that's what we were listening to there. But another Coltrane brought us together about three years ago.
1: Just after you moved to the New York metro area to become a a DJ uh, on the air, I invited you out to hear some music, and uh, we went to the Jazz Standard mm-hmm. in Manhattan and saw the Robbie Coltrane Quartet. had ourselves some ribs, yeah. <laughs> a little mac and cheese, mm-hmm. and uh, and started a conversation. By the end of the night, I think both of us were like, man, we should keep this energy going. Yeah. We got a lot to talk about. It was not long after that that the world entered a kind of pause, and we found ourselves kind of locked down and in place. I started thinking, you know what? I think there's a way that we could keep this conversation going <laughs> and, and yeah. let some others eavesdrop eavesdrop on it.
0: That's right. Yeah, we uh, came together in another, you know, podcast effort that was uh, really successful for both of us um, and for the musical community. We were talking about things like, um, you know, racial equity and creativity, you know, within this lockdown. But I'm really happy that we've launched this new effort It's a new show. It's the late set. And for the first time, I'm actually in a room with you uh, on dual microphones. How about that?
1: That's right. It's worth saying our previous show was called Jazz United. Mm -hmm. Maybe you are here because you know that show. For the entirety of its two seasons, Jazz United was created in remote circumstances. Greg and I were taping in our respective homes and uh,
0: our respective closets yeah
1: folks. <laughs> that's right bedroom closets <laughs> yeah. uh, pandemic mm-hmm. style yeah uh, and we now find ourselves in different circumstances thankfully mm-hmm. um, and in a different city that's right um, so here we are both of us sitting in a studio at WRTI on North Broad Street yeah uh, on the campus of Temple University in Philadelphia that is actually the subject of this first episode of the late set. Um, We want to also mention that the late set, you know, we welcome friends and special guests to pass through. And on today's episode, we will shortly be hearing from the eminent Philadelphia pianist, composer, band leader, scene maker, Orin Evans.
0: That's right. Mayor Evans, as I like to call him. (laughs) He knows the scene, he knows Philadelphia, and uh, it's just that kind of conversation, folks. You know, what happens after, you know, the band has already warmed up, it's the last set of the night. We want to give that kind of vibe and atmosphere and stretch out in some meaningful uh, conversations about our Philadelphia scene and beyond. And speaking of Philadelphia, this is actually your second time here. This is true. And I want to let the people know, Nate N is a native of Honolulu, Hawaii, And I've asked myself for years, why leave beautiful
1: Honolulu? (laughs) Why Philly, man? What happened? Oh, Greg, haven't you ever seen a sunset over the Schuylkill? There's nothing like it. Okay. Okay. Well, I am glad you asked because I came to Philly for college Mm -hmm. uh, in 1994 And I fell into the scene here and uh, Mm. really just fell in love with the jazz community in this city. Um, For all the things that are great about Hawaii, it doesn't have the kind of jazz lineage and legacy that Philadelphia has, right? And the beautiful thing about it, I owe so much to this city for those reasons, right? I was an aspiring musician when I came here. I got a ton of experience playing on the scene here, but... Probably more importantly, this is the city where I became a journalist. Mm. Um, I became a critic, mm. and it happened because of a, a a bygone institution called the Philadelphia City Paper, where I started as an unpaid intern and you know gradually became the uh, the senior jazz critic yeah. uh, in my early twenties, yeah. and really had to learn by doing, mm-hmm. you know, learned on the job, made a bunch of mistakes but more importantly, understood the craft and also understood that when you write something and it goes out and it's read by the public and then you go out to the club and the musicians are there, yeah. they will let you know if you are off base, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and if, if your take is not correct, y- you have to be able to defend it. Yeah. If you can defend it, you're, you're cool. <laughs> but if yeah. it's indefensible, yeah. well, then maybe you've learned a lesson there, young mm-hmm. man. Um, anyway... This city was both challenging and nurturing for me. And I think that that's actually the key to understanding the the Philly jazz scene, is that it is supportive, but it's also like a crucible. You really have to come correct. And I think that lesson is, it's being learned by successive generations. But Greg, I gotta tell you one one story that illustrates this. Please. When I first arrived here, I guess I was 17, and on my very first night in town, mm-hmm. um, the, the concierge at the hotel where my parents and I were staying before freshman move-in, we said, hey, wh- where can we hear some jazz? And you know, the guy said, oh, there's a really good club just you know, a few blocks from here. And he directed us to Zanzibar Blue before it was on Broad Street. It was, I think, on, uh, on 12th Street. Yeah. And so we went to Zanzibar Blue without knowing who was playing. Um, it was a piano trio, and um and I I was just young and brash enough to uh, to ask during the set break, hey do you mind if I sit <laughs> yeah, in? Yeah um and uh, and they actually allowed me to sit in, I think a little skeptically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did okay. I did I did okay enough that the drummer actually said, Hey, you're new in town, you know, you need to you need to understand the lay of the right. land, you know, let me take you around. And so this drummer whose name was Pete Vinson. What? Pete Vincent, yeah, you know him? Oh,
0: man. Continue. I'm coming uh, oh, back to okay. that.
1: Okay, all right. So Pete, he he actually showed up on the corner near my freshman dorm the following Monday, pulled up in his Buick, picked me up, and he said, all right, we're going to go hit the jam sessions. Pete hadn't been a, a, a jam session guy for a few years. He drove me over to Ortlieb's first, which mm. was closed on Monday <laughs> night. And so yeah. plan B, we went to a place called the Blue Moon. We walk in and there's a, a young cat on piano wearing a baseball cap and just, he was demolishing. And, and that was my first experience encountering Orrin Evans. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> and so, crazy, you know, man. but I, the, I, I raised that story because it mm-hmm. is so illustrative of the generosity that I encountered on mm-hmm. the scene, you know, and this was true at, at Ortlieb's and at Chris's, you know, places where I used to sit in all the time. Yeah. Um, and get the support of people like Byron Landom you mm-hmm. know um, and Mike Boone yeah um, you had to prove yourself you had to show that you were bringing something but once you mm-hmm. did then you know you did have a hand up and Pete Vincent showed I mean there's nothing in it for him he was just doing a good deed and uh, wow. and I never forgot that
0: yeah yeah I mean I can tell um, that story is just you know a glowing representation of the uh, folklore that I've heard about the city that I experienced first, though, uh, on record. You'll hear me, folks, go back to my Fisher-Price turntable days (laughs) throughout this podcast, okay? Imagine this three-year-old kid in his parents' record collection. One of those records was Grover Washington Jr. Live at the Bijou. And when you said Pete Vincent, mm. I lit up for joy because he and bassist Tyrone Brown, yeah. that's my musical DNA. That's my start. That's how I understand the bass and drums rhythm connection, you know, at a, at a very young age. Um, Philadelphia was the sound of that record for me, honestly. Um an exciting crowd musicians who were well versed in groove they could swing their butts off and they also had this fiery nod to almost some avant leanings mm. but it was all okay it was all acceptable
1: music for the people you know what i mean uh, greg i think we need to drop the needle on lock it let's in get the to the it now. let's get to it <laughs> here we go <laughs> Lock it in the pocket from the Grover Washington Jr. album, Live at the Bijou, with my man Pete Vinson on drums.
0: Yes, it was. Oh, my goodness.
1: So, so yeah, let's talk about your relationship with Philadelphia, because, you know, as you said, this is my second time around. Mm -hmm. You've been here for a little over a year now. Yeah. You were in, in the New York area. Right. And before that, your hometown of Nashville. True. So... What is the nature of your relationship with Philly and with the with the jazz scene here? I mean, did you mm-hmm. come with some some preconceived notions or like a, a prior relationship other than uh, our man Grover? <laughs> sure,
0: sure. I
1: think in general,
0: I see it as a city with a spirit, a strong city mm. spirit, uh, very unlike the city that I came from that you mentioned, which is Nashville, Tennessee, Um I really resonated with the East Coast vibrations, though, as a young child, Mm -hmm. everybody minding their own business, but in search of the best that they could be. That was my ethos of what the East Coast meant. So I was trying to get to the East Coast as fast as I could. At first, it was as a touring musician. I came to Philadelphia to play uh, World Cafe Live and the Ardmore and got to see some of the um, jam sessions that you were talking about, but never really participate because we were on a tight schedule. Yeah. But I always thought that Philadelphia, as you said, was a proving ground, but that also was a self-contained community. There's people like Bootsy Barnes and Larry McKenna that never really left Philadelphia, but even as a Nashvilleian in search of, you know, beyond the, you know, A-list names in jazz, I knew who they were. Yeah. So Philadelphia certainly had, Uh, the space to tell it, if you will, about their talent. But I also saw a city that maybe was a little bit mm, chip on its shoulder, if Mm -hmm. I could say it that way, about being so close to New York, but by not being seen as the top-tiered talent base that it really is.
1: Yeah, well, that's a really good point because there are moments in jazz history where you see the Philadelphia sound or Philadelphia style, if you will, Mm -hmm. moving in and taking over, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm thinking about the first so-called great Miles Davis quintet with Philly Joe Jones and John Coltrane and Mm -hmm. Red Garland, you know, Philly Joe really is the guy who assembled that band more or less. And it's a, it's a Philly band basically, Mm -hmm. or the, you know, almost contemporaneous, uh, Edition of Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, mm-hmm. you know the Bobby Timmons Benny Golson yeah. band, um, you know which is, let's call Blakey an honorary Philadelphian during that tenure. He's from Pittsburgh, yeah. but you know everyone <laughs> else in that band was Philly. That's right. That's right. Um, and so you know you think of these moments where the Philly sound is the dominant sound, mm-hmm. um, but it's always coexisting with this idea that New York is the mecca. Yeah. Right. It's like yeah. you've got to go to New York. You got to make it in New York. Mm-hmm. But you know, we opened this show with a recording of of John Coltrane at the Showboat for a reason. That's right. right? Because Coltrane, during his you know, really the peak of his band leading um, experience, mm-hmm. you know, nineteen sixty three, sixty four. Yeah. Um, that band was was world class. Right. Um, they played. They came back mm-hmm. and they played the Showboat a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you yeah. look at the at sure. the uh, the sure. you know. Coltrane's Road Diary, yep. um, you know, they never got too big for Philly.
0: Not at all. Not at all. And I think that's indicative of the fans here. Mm-hmm. In another uh, world, or another analogy, Philadelphia sports fans are some of the most rowdy Um, (laughs) defensive, aggressive sports fans, uh, which reminds me the old DJ and record producer, Joel Doran talks about being outside of the showboat that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And there's this fist fight going on in the street and he leans over and asks a guy, Hey man, what are they fighting about? Is it a girl? Is it, you know, some money? No, man. One guy says Sonny Rollins is greater. The other guy says John Coltrane (laughs) is greater. So it's that kind of environment that still seeps through um, the generations that I find myself encountering here as host of Evening Jazz. Notably, I stand on the shoulders of a great man, BP, Bob Perkins. Um, And as much as I admire that uh, classic landscape, uh, you, Nate, and I have partnered with you in this, uh, we want to make sure to attach Philadelphia, not just to classic things, but to now. That's right. And I know we have to move the needle and there is some opposition. I'll just go ahead and tell it, but I'm glad to be here. And I hope that we can help this generation of Philadelphia as a music society be a healthy embrace of ancient to the future.
1: Yeah, that's beautifully put. And you know, uh, if you have been listening to WRTI for a long time, you know BP with the GM. Yeah. GM, for those who don't know, stands for good music. Yep. Mm-hmm. But you know what? The good music is not a static thing. <laughs> that's right. And uh, and that's what uh, that's what Mr. Bryant here is is reminding us of. That's that's what I believe yep. firmly with all my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, the music evolves. That's right. Uh, we don't discard the old. No, no. We carry it forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know what? So does our guest in this episode. He is a perfect example of that bridge. And so with that, why don't we pivot to our conversation with the great Oren Evans.
0: We are pleased to welcome Orrin Evans to the late set and Nate, I think you have uh, a bit of an Orin, origin Orin <laughs> Evans story.
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. Um, you know, earlier I alluded to the fact that that on my first night in town in Philadelphia, I sat in at Zanzibar blue. Um, and the drummer on that gig was Pete Vinson. And, um, he liked what he heard enough that he said, you know what, I'm going to take you around and show you the spots. You know, you need to know the lay of the land. So he picked me up, you know, the next week and we drove around. I think Ortlieb's was closed that night. And so he said, I've I, I heard, heard of this other spot. So we rolled up to the Blue Moon Jazz Cafe and there was somebody at the piano who was like, not that much older than me, wearing, like, a T-shirt and a baseball cap and just demolishing. And I remember Pete looked at me, he was like, I thought I knew everybody. (laughs) And that was my introduction to Orrin Evans. Um, And what a fortuitous one, and here we are. So thank you, first of all, for being here.
2: Thank you, thank you. Uh, um, uh, Pete Pete was amazing. We ended up playing together a little bit after that at the old Zanzibar. Mm -hmm. When I say old, the 11th Street Zanzibar. And um, there was just music almost seven days, you know, and it's ironic that you said Ortlieb's was closed that night because Ortlieb's was only closed on Mondays. Mm -hmm. So that's why Blue Moon did their jam session on Mondays, and that's where I started. So it was like all these different things, but there was always somewhere to go.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was my my experience too. You know, you think about the Tuesday Ortlieb's situation, which you've had a, a hand in trying to kind of Resuscitate on the scene in Philly. Um, so much happening at Ortlieb's. Chris's was was fairly new at that point, uh, or just getting started. Um, and then places like Natalie's and Bob and Barbara's, and you know, it was kind of like everywhere. Yep, mm-hmm.
2: definitely. Oh man, Bob and Barbara's, Natalie's. I used to live on the you live on 40th Street between Market and Chestnut, so Natalie's was right at the corner, and I could literally sit in my apartment and hear. Uh, Some of the Saturday matinees, you know, with with some of the great people that I was able, blessed to just be around. If I had to ask you,
0: Oren, for someone who may be listening now that's outside of Philadelphia, that maybe hasn't traversed the Philadelphia landscape, what is the Philadelphia sound to you?
2: You know, the beautiful thing is for years I I probably would give you, you know, I would define that for you. Mm -hmm. For years, I would. I would say, well, this is the way that, you know, certain drummers play their ride cymbals. You know, I might have said that. Then I might have said, well, this is the way that a lot of piano players voice chords because you could hear similarity in McCoy Tyner and Bobby Timmons. Mm -hmm. You could really hear similarities if you were really listening. Um, You could hear similarities in the way that Trudy Pitts played Along with other people like Shirley Scott, as far as Oregon and Joey D. Francesco, you know who, after came along. But we, you can hear, you can hear like the Philly thing. But then I, I got away from saying that because then where does that, where does Jamal Adin Takuma fit into that? Uh-huh. Where does Dave Burrell fit into that? Where does Sun Ra fit into that? Although you can still hear some of those voicings, I mean, I think it's a piano thing. You can't get away from <laughs> it. Like, there's, you can still hear some of those voicings in there. And, and even in Dave Burrell, the Philly sound is one that if you're willing to embrace the diversity of sound, then you're willing to really deal with the Philly sound because it goes from catalyst to the roots. It's just huge. I mean, you know, no one's going to ask you about the Jersey sound. And I'm originally born and raised (laughs) in Jersey, so I say that, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, when we talk about Hall of Notes and, like, just all the connection. That's right outside of Jersey, which Mm -hmm. really comes into Philly. And it's just from jazz, not only jazz, but jazz, folk music, pop music. I never realized, when I was asked that question 20 years ago, I I thought I had to answer it. Mm And 20 years later, I'm like, there's no way to define how vast the music is. Even if you look at the people that live here right now, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody put on Facebook the other day, they posted two venues that existed in the 90s. um, And they said, have you ever played at such and such and such and such? And, you know, I'm, I'm a... I'm a comment searcher. I'll sit there and look at the comments all <laughs> yeah. day. I'm like, wow, yeah. that's deep. And what I noticed is I was looking at the comments. There was a list of people that had played at venue A mm-hmm. and a list of people that had played at venue B. And it just started making me think about how diverse this city is, that you could have spent a whole career at venue A and never have been to venue B.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Or when you deal with the fact that Although everyone loves to talk about the comparison of Bootsy Barnes and Larry McKinnon, two tenor titans who came from the city, they didn't meet till the 80s. Wow. Wow. You know, and, and I've talked to both of them about that. Uh, and, 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 and it's really deep when you think about it, because Bootsy Barnes was dealing with the Black Musicians Union and... Larry was touring wherever he was doing, and and they didn't really. When I say they didn't meet, because somebody's probably listening, is gonna be like, no, they did meet one time. <laughs> but there's a great article. I think it came out in the, came out right around the time they did this record on Crisscross, mm-hmm. and they talk about it in that article how they didn't meet till much later in life. So and when you think mm-hmm. about the Philly sound, I just uh, it's a very diverse one that is sometimes. Um, too welcoming <laughs> but a very uh-huh. welcoming sound that's like hey come on let me see what you got to offer mm-hmm. uh and and that's and and that's the communal spirit of the city that i love you know and at the same time that's the same spirit that sometimes we need to like close the door <laughs> interesting interesting you
1: know? well elaborate on on that a bit because you know when i think about my relationship to this city it's really formative you know i This is where I became a journalist. It's where I first started writing about music. It's the first real jazz community that I had a relationship with. This was the same time that I was getting to know you. And one feature article that I remember writing for the Philadelphia City paper 25 years ago or something, it was a profile of you with a subtext of your tensions with the scene, you know, Mm -hmm. and the fact that you felt... That you had not been supported the way that that you needed to be, and and there was no choice for you but to go to New York and to spend some time away from the scene that you that you love. So I think you remember that moment. Oh, I definitely, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I definitely remember that moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess in in
2: twenty five years later, I think what I've realized is what I've felt. And, and I will always struggle to be a champion to, to fix, is our inability, when I say our, I say Philadelphia. Although, I have to say, people listening from Jersey, I'm from Trenton, New Jersey, but my musical career and my musical life started in Philadelphia. But we are a community that has a problem looking in the mirror and saying, I'm okay with myself. Hmm. Um, We always have to validate our, we are, (laughs) if Nicholas is listening, we are really what jazz is. (laughs) We have to validate ourselves by something else. Sometimes we Philadelphians are like, we're only good if this other person likes us, you know? And I think that's our biggest fault sometimes as a community and a music, um, because it it gets in the way of us being able to stand on our own two feet and say, man, Catalyst with Eddie Green was a great band. Yeah, We don't need anybody else. We don't need to say such and such, also guest starred in that band to make it great. Pieces of a Dream was a great band, mm-hmm. period. The Roots, great. We don't need to say, but sometimes we get to that, and much like the music that I, that I play, we get to that because we're like... <sighs> Nothing else is working, so all right. let me throw this other thing that has nothing to do with me but might validate me. And that's what I struggle with in Philly sometimes, where you don't look in the mirror and realize our own worth. So I'm not saying that in a negative way, like looking down on Philly, I'm looking up mm. and, and, and saying I want all of them to look up, and that's always been an issue.
0: I want to ask to be part of that question, though, because a lot of people say, you know, when I go away from my home city, and I am recognized. Then I come back and I'm embraced. On a really micro level, I've experienced that from where I come from, which is Nashville, Tennessee. When you came back to Philadelphia, you had grown obviously, but did you feel a bigger embrace with your style, with your
2: um, personage on the scene? Well, the funny thing is much like when you look at some of the artists like Jamal Adin Takuma, and, uh, and there's others that I can't, uh, Tyrone Brown, um, and the list can go on. I never really left Philly, mm-hmm. and and maybe that's some of the issues. I mean, mm-hmm. I left in '93, um, went to Rutgers University, then went to New York. But I was always here. I, I had you know even some of that time in New York, I was coming back doing Blue Moon weekly. I, I went to New York. We lived there. Uh, I met new friends, and I brought them back to Philly. Mm-hmm. Some of the first places I played with the people that I met in New York were Blue Moon and Zanzibar because I didn't have gigs in New York. So I was like, I went to New York, I met the people that I wanted to play with, and then I'm like, hey, I got some gigs in Philadelphia, and I'm driving back down the turnpike. So in the same way, I, you know, it's almost like I never really left the girl long enough for her to miss me. I did.
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, you, you were describing that sort of looking in the mirror um, metaphor, and that's a real sort of internal dialogue what about the external part i mean the support from audience members and from members of the community i mean do you feel that there was a gap between the quality of the musicianship on the scene and the quality of the support from the public
2: i'll speak to the public first i mean philly if you mentioned if we just deal with sports philly are where's are some of the worst sports fans <laughs> in the world it's like if you ain't an Eagles fan you could you you might get a divorce over that you know what i mean mm-hmm. if, if you if you're not like a Phillies fan or the best place to get a hoagie the best place to get a cheesesteak we're really hardcore on what we believe in i don't want to say believe i hope we don't believe in those but that that, that we hold true yeah as far as the audience which carries on into what we, the musicians, too, and just us as being from the city. And maybe this is other cities, but I'm talking about Philly now. We hold so true to what we know, sometimes not realizing that we're closing the door to what we don't know. And that affects us yeah. as artists on the stand, and it affects us as supporters of the music. You know, one of the things during the series that I've been doing at Solar Myth, you'd be surprised at how many musicians have come up to me and said, I've never been here, and and I may have never come here, you know, because some of the programming didn't lean toward them, or they weren't booked there. You know, that's one of the things we have to get over as musicians. We only go out if the person calls us for the gig. And I think the reality is one of the best things that I did when I moved back to Philly in 98, I told my wife I wouldn't, I would limit my local gigs. And I'm glad I did that because then it became something more of, I just want to support the venue. I'm not supporting the mm-hmm. venue because they're giving me a gig. You know, I'm supporting the venue mm-hmm. because it's a venue supporting the music. And and that's what we have to get to. But sometimes it gets into, they don't call me, so I'm not going... Or they don't make the hoagies the way I like them, so I'm not going, <laughs> you know? So one of the things with the audience and the, the musicians that are on the stage in Philly is just opening our hearts to something and minds to something that we're not familiar with. And that's what I experienced in it growing up in Philly. I was I don't, you would see Edgar Bateman and then see Mickey Roker. You know, you see Arthur Harper and see Jimmy Merritt. So many different things, and they would all just get together. I remember the first time I heard David Murray in Philly. I didn't have the words to articulate that he was different to me than Hank Mobley, you know, and mess it bad. But whatever, just the bottom line. I didn't. It was just music. Yeah. I didn't get into this was this and this was this. You got your hoagies with extra mayo, cool. I like my hoagies with onions, cool. Whatever. I like. I'm mm. going to try your hoagie. I'm not going to eat it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm saying I'm not going to not eat it, is what I meant to say. <laughs> That's what I meant to Came out the wrong way. <laughs> it's all good.
0: I'm glad you mentioned uh, Edgar Bateman there, because the first time I actually got to hear him uh, was on Blessed Ones. That was the first album of yours I actually heard. The You could say, I guess, pre-Tar Baby kind of com- mm-hmm. configuration. But on your records, it's almost like a, a family album, if I can use that phrase. Um Talk about community, preserving community, and using your records to be kind of a portal to the Philadelphia
2: scene. I mean, growing up with the parents that I had, there was always just something happening, whether it was a poetry reading or a little concert in our living room or a rehearsal or just a cookout. It was always something happening in the house that I grew up in. And then when we moved to Philly, the same thing happened. It was just always somebody at the house and we were doing something. So for me, sometimes those still moments, I feel like, oh, I need to call some people and tell them to come over. And 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 that is what has created that spirit in me, you know, to just you know what I call the village and just be communal and fellowship with people and celebrate all of our differences. If we don't do that off the bandstand, it's really, for me, impossible to do it on the bandstand. Uh, so one of the things I do love about being in Philly, like this afternoon I had uh, lunch with Luke O'Reilly and uh, Neil Pogorsky, two piano players. And I was like, man, how, how often does this happen, where you just mm-hmm. pop in a bar and there's three piano players just yeah. sitting around having a conversation? And we're talking about all our next records and what we want to do, three piano players. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I've always wanted to do on and off the bandstand. So when I look at those records, like, you know, blessed Ones and, 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 and Continuing, there were, that was more about, let's just get together. Yeah, I think I called Edgar Bateman the day before that record day, I was like, oh, I want to see if he can do it. And I remember picking him up and driving him to New York. I think Eric had only played with him once before two weeks prior at Ortlieb's, you know? Mm. But I was like, let's do this, you know? So it was more family. And, and and Edgar's son and I went to high school together. We've known each other since sixth grade. Mm-hmm. So there's always that definite family thing. And and that's what's really important to me, like in creating that energy on the bandstand that can transfer off the bandstand
1: you mentioned the village. wasn't there a period of time when you were getting cats together at your home not to play but just to talk? like this was this was a while back. <laughs>
2: wow. yeah, this, I, I don't even know if it's still on YouTube, but it wasn't it was actually about two different clubs and some of the musicians were having issues with the club and everything it might have been like early Facebook. And I just called everybody over to my house, including the club owners, and I called it "Hot Dogs and Jazz." Oof. And we just like mm-hmm. I cooked some hot dogs in the crock pot, and and we all just talked about our grievances as the musicians. Pete Souders was there. Um, rest in peace, Ron was there. Ron Talton from Chris's, representing Chris's. Um, it was really a great day, and we all and it was just great artists and the owners the owners giving their side like you know ron wasn't the owner but he was the general manager at the time giving his side like this is what it cost me to do this and yeah. this is what you're asking for and then pete giving his side as also an artist and an owner but um those moments were really special and uh i, I, I remember jerome jennings even drove drove down uh, from New York to be there. It was it was a great time.
1: It's like a council of reconciliation in your backyard. There
2: you go. Hot dogs and jazz. <laughs> this is this is why
1: you're such a <laughs> such a crucial linchpin of, of this and any scene. My goodness. Can you speak to where the scene is at now on a musical and social level? Because Greg and I having both moved to Philly within the last year or two, and for me it's you know twenty Something years since I left, I'm really struck by a vibrancy out there, you know. And it seems like there's a lot of like there's a lot of like positive energy. What is your perspective on that? Do you feel the same way, or am I am I making that up? That's such a setup.
2: We're like we're going to talk about how sunny it is, and this big ass cloud comes in. I'm sorry, let me pull that back. I I I don't feel that, and I'll just be real. I I miss. Yeah. I miss I miss the old Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I don't say mm-hmm. that as, like, an old bitter person. Mm-hmm. I'll be as clear as possible. At 6 p.m. on a Sunday, now that um, my oldest is 30 and my youngest is 25 and they don't live with me,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and my wife, at 6 p.m. On a, sun- on a Sunday, I should be able to go out and hear some swinging stuff in Philly. Yeah. And there was a time when I could. At 6 p.m. on a Sunday, I could go down to Ortlieb's. Now, Mondays was always that day that maybe something wasn't happening. But even before that, on Mondays, I could go to Blue Note up in my my neighborhood now in West Oak Lane where Tony Williams was doing a session, Mm. um, saxophonist. And Tony Williams, up until maybe two years ago, you know, he's not doing well right now and sending prayers and love out to him. But up until about two years ago, kept a session going every Monday, somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, so that was happening. Tuesdays, everybody went down to leaves and then there was another crew that went to, um, uh, I want to say, 21st Street. That was what it was called, 21st Street Cafe. We, we have these—it's so divided. I played here, and I didn't play here. And I'm like, w- why didn't you play at both places? And it was a very interesting thing is looking at who had played at both places and who had only played at one. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so that was Tuesdays. Then it was Wednesdays, you went back to leaves. You could go to Zanzibar, any of those nights. So, you know, and then there was Chris's. Chris's wasn't the Chris's we know now at that time. Yeah. I was a little different, but there was still, it was still live music up front. And it was, you know, I'm trying to think of some other places that exist with little small places in South Philly, like Night Dreamers. So w- what bothers me about the scene right now that has become so insular, it's like, mm-hmm. um, and I say this as a challenge, There's the students that that go here, that go to Temple University, that I never, that graduate, and I have never seen out on the scene, never seen at a jam session. He never texted me and said, "Hey, I would like to get into a concert." I don't care if it's me or any other person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's become like, okay, well, you finish these four years in this in in these four walls, then you go out into the world. But you were in a city that should have some information for you outside of those walls while you're getting the education in these walls. Mm-hmm. And you deal with these other institutions that are right here in, in Philly, and it's nowhere for them to go. Mm. Um, so I, you know, and I don't, I wasn't trying to bring a dark cloud on. No. I'm, try, mm-hmm. I'm trying to to figure mm-hmm. out, and that's the beauty of, you know, what was happening at Solar Myth. Just we need to make an effort. And and I had to realize also, I've been saying a lot of times, like, well, the elders, the elders had to look in the mirror and be like, well, wait a minute. Mm. How old was Mike Boone when I was whatever? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a tw- 20 year difference between Mike and I. So now it's my turn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's ev- everybody needs to step up and really create an environment where the music lives other places than just in the classroom. Mm-hmm. We need to bring it back to the streets. So Philly has a lot going on, but it it's. Um, <laughs> It's, the jazz scene has been Giuliani, and we need to. Yeah. We need to. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's wow. I, I that's
1: definitely wild. feel you on that, and and it's the it's the the fixtures that we're we're missing, right? It's like there's no shortage of appointment viewing, yeah. Um, special bookings, you know. Um, we mentioned Solar Myth. I mean mutual friend of ours, Mark Christman. Mm-hmm. I mean, shout out to Ars Nova. Th- yep. They've been making special appointment viewing for a long time. A long time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but that that idea that you can just walk into a space, not even really know who's playing that night, but know that mm-hmm. there's something happening, yep. That I do miss that too. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly.
0: Well, I think too, out of a spirit of necessity over the pandemic, um, Club Patio, did I get it right? Mm-hmm. That's what you founded. Um, would you give... Um, a two- or three-point starter's guide. If a musician is listening to this, they want to have music, what do they need to have quickly to get a scene happening if we're saying there's actually a shortage of a venue?
2: Lack of fear. Mm -hmm. You start with that, and, you know, there's there's a motivational book called Go for No, and then, you know, when you read it, you realize it, the the more you go for no, somewhere on the other side of that, there's a yes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's been it's, today has been one of those no days. I've been on the mm-hmm. phone with customer mm-hmm. service, getting a bunch of no's, but I'm going for yes, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna make it work. Yeah, and, and if you don't have that in your heart to start with, then just do what feels comfortable for you. If you if you're talking about a starter kit for the way that I've done it,
0: mm-hmm.
2: it's been knock down that door when the rejection comes. Keep going, keep going, keep going. And that's not for everybody. That doesn't, I'm not saying, you know, if if someone, I remember someone said to me, I want to do a record, but I got to save some money. Then you don't want to do a record. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or yeah. I want to do a record. I'm just trying to figure out how to uh, make mm-hmm. money when it comes out. Well, you mm-hmm. don't want to do a record. Right. So if you're not willing to make that commitment mm-hmm. to what might not happen, and be pleasantly surprised when it does happen. Mm-hmm. Then just do whatever makes you feel, feel comfortable, yeah. and, and whatever that is 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 up to you. But right that on. that would be you know as far as going into this as a business, and when I say that as a business, I mean solely as a performer. Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to do that. You know, just in the last week, the phone calls I've had and the experiences I've had. Dealing with major festivals and conversations, nothing negative. But it's it's not you don't hang up the phone and say, Whoo, that was fun," right? You know, it's a whole <laughs> nother thing. It's like, "Ooh, I got to fill this." In. Oh shoot, you know, I didn't give him the right number for my wire transfer. Oh shoot, I got to cover the band. Like, there's a lot of stuff that people don't think about mm. um as a as an artist and a self employed leader. Yeah. So anybody interested in doing that, that's the first thing I would say. If, if If you're scared to know, do something else.
0: Well, Oren, we want to thank you for coming down here to talk to us today, man, and shedding light on uh, your philosophy and helping us to better understand the Philadelphia sound.
1: And the Philadelphia scene. Yeah. And, uh... It's gonna get better, man. <laughs> See, <laughs> See, look at you, got look got at you. you. <laughs> well, I ain't going nowhere. I'm Believe. not going back
2: to New York where my car gets towed. So, <laughs> there it is. I'm, y'all stuck with me. I'm stuck with you. I, I, I like
1: a, I like a, uh, a cosmology where Orrin Evans is is in the council of elders. Yeah, this is this is Appreciate the kind of elder them. that we want. That's <laughs> it. So, onward. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you for joining us for The Late Set. If you're listening to this after October 25th, WRTI has just dropped a concert film with Orrin Evans and a bunch of Philly cats. It's a super group with uh, Bilal, the vocalist, Evie player John Swana; Robin Eubanks, the trombonist, Mike Boone, the bassist, and Justin Faulkner on drums. Wow. You want to see that? It awaits you on our YouTube channel. ¶¶
1: got another episode of The Late Set in your podcast feed. This one is an episode with Joshua Redman. We're talking all about competitions. Of course, it features Mr. Bryant and myself. Check him out on the air at WRTI, 90.1 FM in the Philadelphia area. And you can check out what I have to say about the competition and much more at WRTI.org.
0: The Late Set is a production of WRTI and made possible by WRTI members. It's hosted by yours truly, Greg Bryant and Nate Chinen. The show is produced by Alex Arif.
1: WRTI's operations manager is Joe Patty, and director of production is Tyler McClure. Associate general manager for content and programming is Josh Jackson. Bill Johnson is WRTI's general manager. Our website, thelateset.org. While you're there, you can see everything else WRTI has cooking here in Philadelphia and beyond. We'll see you soon.